Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. I'm Vas Christodoulou. This week's guest is one of the most exciting young storytellers in America today. Charles Yu is the author of the short story collections Sorry Please Thank You and Third Class Superhero and two genre-bending metafictional novels, How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe and his latest, Interior Chinatown for which he won the 2020 National Book Award. He's also the winner of a Writers Guild of America Award for his work as a screenwriter on HBO's Westworld. Charles, you're the winner of the 2020 National Book Award, which is one of America's most prestigious literary prizes. It must have been incredibly surreal to have this potentially life-changing event take place on a Zoom call. (laughs) Yes, incredibly surreal is probably the only way to describe it. Uh, I actually, you know, several months later, still can't quite, you know, believe it. I I like haven't let myself fully enjoy the memory because I I feel like it'll kind of ruin it. I just want to keep it (laughs) out there somewhere. Like a thing that happened. I don't know. Uh, The book in question is Interior Chinatown, which is quite different to the sort of thing that normally wins literary fiction awards. It's a high concept, experimental, satirical novel set in a surreal version of Hollywood. Can you give us the elevator pitch? Sure. Elevator pitch is Willis Wu, the protagonist of the book, is... Uh, he lives in a weird kind of universe. You know, it's a little bit like a police procedural. Um, so law and order, or I don't know, what's one in the UK? We had, we had law and order in the UK for a while <laughs> yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, it's everywhere. It's, a, it's, it's uh, law and order meets the twilight zone, I guess would be a, a very... So, so Willis is trapped basically inside of a police procedural, inside of a world where that's what reality is. And uh, the world is called black and white because it's a cop show and it's a play on words. And within black and white, and also because the two leads, you know, one is black and one is white. The Willis's role within this show is to be generic Asian man number three. And what he dreams of being is the special guest star who is Kung Fu guy. Um, and so the, the book is really about Willis trying to get better a better role in the story and what happens to him when he does that. 
What did you discover about the history of Orientalism in American drama when you were researching this book? How did these awful archetypes come to epitomize Chinese culture on screen? Well, one thing I discovered was it had been going on longer than I thought. You know, I grew up watching TV in the 80s and 90s. And um, I don't know, I guess that that's the basis for my recollection. And and so doing some research, I just was, I guess, both disturbed, but also it, it was illuminating to find out that it's been there from the very beginning. That it, And in a lot of ways, it was constructed. I guess that's the other thing I found out was that this this sense was of of other you know was baked into to it you know so the one of the most fascinating things was for instance chinatown was used you know it, it's a place where people lived and worked and then hollywood would go film it and say basically we're going to shoot los angeles chinatown for unspecified town in asia so just basically act Asian, you know, like, be, like that's a thing. Be, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you're in the background of this shot and just, yeah. And, and be an Asian person. And so, you know, and some of these people would, were actors, you know, that was, it was just part of their reality is like, I have a shop here in Chinatown and also I get to play an Asian person, you know, and I don't know, there was something about that duality and that disconnect that was just fascinating to me. And the satire that you depict in interior Chinatown, I mean, it really is excruciatingly racist and awful. You know, you have American born Chinese or Taiwanese characters who have to put on fake accents to sound more, quote unquote, authentic. What are you hoping to achieve by satirizing these roles? Yeah. And and I'm glad you mentioned fake accents. That That's a big part of it. It's you know, that is something that also in the research that I found out is that people would have to do varying degrees of fake accents. Not that there's anything wrong, obviously, of course, with having an accent. It's just this sort of egregiously fake accents that are offensive and and, and just sort of troubling. Um, but I think, you know, the probably first and only real goal in terms of like hoping to achieve is telling the story from a perspective that we don't get very often, or at least I haven't seen very often, you know, which is the voice of this character who's in the background, specifically an Asian American, uh, in Willis's case, an Asian American guy, you know, which, which carries its own baggage as opposed to the portrayals and stereotypes of Asian American women. Willis is an Asian American guy. And that is, you know, I don't know, I don't want to make a hierarchy, but it has to be among the most neglected and sort of, reductive stereotypes, at least historically in American TV and film. It's just, you associate it with either nerds or basically people that do martial arts or maybe a food delivery guy. So I guess what I was hoping to do is really give dimension and full life to these characters who don't normally get that treatment. And alongside the satire of uh, racism in the entertainment industry, the book reveals the long and ugly history of legal discrimination against Asians in the US. Can you give us an outline of that? Yes. Um, In any significant numbers, it's been about 200 years since um, Asians started to make their way. I mean, there was a long history before even like Filipino sailors were coming over. But, But starting about 200 years ago, Chinese laborers started to be brought over, basically. And that created a lot of resentment among 
workers, especially along the West Coast, where the Chinese laborers were displacing white workers. And so it created an atmosphere of sort of hostility and economic, I I guess the argument was economic sort of precarity for, for these workers who were having their jobs threatened. And it sort of built over the course of a few of of many years to the point where there was an exclusion act where it was the first and I think still the only explicitly racist well explicitly exclusionary act of the US federal government on the basis of of not not even of nationality of of race specifically it's like you could be chinese ethnically from anywhere in the world you are not allowed to come to the U.S. So that was an act that was passed in 1882 by the Congress. And it lasted in one form or another, at least until 1945. So for a long time, basically, Chinese and then other people from other countries in East Asia were explicitly not allowed to come. And so and and that created a situation where you had some people over here that had come to work and now were separated from their families or couldn't go back or they couldn't bring their families. And it also very much created a situation where they were seen as foreigners because they literally weren't allowed to become citizens. They weren't given any legal rights. And so in, in 1965, the, uh, an act was passed, the Hard Seller Act, which basically lifted all of those kind of quotas or bans on immigration from countries. And so it's between those, those two markers, I guess that the, I don't know if the book is, is doing this so much, but that's the background for what happened here is you had people that immigrated and then came to a country that didn't sort of allow them to feel at home. And yet they couldn't for one reason or another go back to home. And I think home had changed. So you have people here that are now trapped in a place that I think of as interior Chinatown. It's sort of trapped in a, almost like in amber preserved of like, here are people that came looking for a new life and they got some version of it, but it's a kind of degraded, reductive version. And, and I'm doing all that through like the lens of TV. It's like, here is the popular representation for how Asians are viewed in the U S And how does that actually interact with reality in this kind of feedback loop? How does, if we watch Asians this way and this informs our sensibility, it informs our background ideas of who Asians are and how they can never really be fully American. What does that do? You know, what does that do to the psychology of the Asians? And what does that do to the psychology of everyone else as well? Where does the American Chinatown come from? Well, that's a good question. In the research for the book, I read a really great book by Bonnie Tsui, which is American Chinatown. And uh, she investigates or, or writes about five different Chinatowns, L.A., San Francisco, New York, Honolulu and Vegas. And uh, different ones came from different places. You know, like San Francisco was created organically at first because there were so many workers there who had been brought over to work on the railroads. And... It was also created out of necessity because they were either explicitly or implicitly zoned out of living with the the white mainstream population. So in a way, it was a legal ghetto first. Right. And and then it became a sort of cultural mental ghetto later. And, And then a fascinating fact I found about San Francisco was after the fire and earthquake and fire in San Francisco in the early 1900s in 1906, they had to actually rebuild 
San Francisco Chinatown. And in the construction and the reconstruction of Chinatown, they brought in European architects who were basically given the instruction to add features to Chinatown so it would seem more oriental, you know. And so right there from the beginning, you have baked in this idea of here is a presentation of something rather than here is an actual thing. And then, you know, similarly in L.A., there, there were actually for a while competing Chinatowns where it was, in a sense, not as organic, right? It's an idea of like, let's develop an area that, you know, a district. So, but, but I think mostly where they come from is the sort of history of Chinese or, or Chinese diaspora come over and then they weren't allowed to live in certain places. So they clustered both by necessity and out of desire to be closer to each other. So, Like your hero, Willis Wu, you're a Taiwanese-American who works in Hollywood. And your first novel, the marvellous How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, starred a protagonist called Charles Yu. And both Willis and the fictional Charles have complex and heartfelt father-son relationships that power the story. Uh, Will you speak a little bit about the way you draw on personal experience in your fiction, both in terms of the metafictional games that you're playing and the emotional reserves that you draw on? Yes, thank you. That's uh, a really, really well-formulated question. (laughs) Uh, It's so good, I feel like I don't have to answer it because I think the answer sort of baked into it in a way. Uh, I, yeah, my parents are from Taiwan. They're Taiwanese. And so I was raised as Taiwanese American and I heard a lot of stories growing up from my parents, you know, uh, about what it was like when they came over. And when I was a kid, the initial reaction is like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Like, I I don't know. What am I going to do with that? Yeah. It was hard for you. I get it. You know, like it's easier for me. And it's only as I've gotten older that one, I've gotten more interested, you know, in like what they went through and wanted to write about them, but I didn't know what to do with all of that. I didn't know what to do with the emotional experience. I didn't know what to do with the, it just felt like, you know, for instance, my, my dad really did end up at Mississippi. You know, he got, he was lucky enough to, to get a graduate fellowship at Mississippi state. That was part of, when he came over, that was part of why he was allowed to come over because he was in a specialized field. And my mom really did end up, you know, in Alabama. So both of my parents ended up in the South. And for a long time, I, I just didn't know how to make something of that if I wanted to at all. It, it just felt like, how does that connect to my experience? How does that connect to, will anyone care about that experience? You know, I had a kind of insecurity about, is this a story worth telling? And I don't know. I, I guess the metafictional narrative was the frame that I found to try to write about it. Because really, I did work for many years on different drafts of this book that you wouldn't recognize, that are very different from what it ended up being. And none of it ever really stuck. And I think it's because it didn't have the right structure. And so another way to look at the book, you know, even more broad than an elevator pitch is it's Willis Wu trying to tell the story of his family. He's trying to locate what the story is and where his part is. And in the course of doing that, he ends up finding out it's a lot more complex than he thought. And so I guess that that's both as an author and as the character, um, there's some overlap there of like, what is this story and how do I shape it? And, and then to kind of locate it in an even 
another context is looking back, you know, I started writing this version of the book right after Trump got elected, um, you know, our former president here in the U.S. And I thought about my parents, you know, at that point, 50 some years as immigrants. And it just felt like if this is the third act of the story of them being American, how did this movie end up here? You know, like, how did we get here? And how is it this incredible last minute swerve into a completely different story? What does that do to their conception of everything? Does it, does it change it? Or am I imposing it? So how about uh, your relationship with your, with your kids? Because you've become a father in the, in the time between your, your two novels. Do you write with your children in mind as well? Yeah, I definitely do. I think I write, with my my kids and my parents in mind and and my wife is always this kind of um looming figure <laughs> uh, sometimes explicit but um but I, I write with all of them you know um in mind but but as a dad it, it totally shifted my perspective you know and i think that that is reflected to some extent in in like if i had tried to write this book 10 years ago it would have been from the son's perspective because i didn't you know my kids were very young at that point and i didn't have the experiences. And now, you know, like Willis, I think I feel very much caught between generations, almost not as a bridge, but just almost like not knowing what to make of all of it. You know, my parents grew, were born in Taiwan and, and, and lived part of their lives here and came over. My kids have only been in America, you know? And so, and I'm sort of in the middle and I, I don't know, you know, for me, it just gives a, a whole other world to to explore. So, yeah, I write with with my kids in mind. Both your novels are genre defying in a way that is bound to infuriate librarians and publishers, but delight readers, I think. Uh, so I have to ask, what did you grow up reading? Lots of stuff. I loved reading science. Um, just as a kid, I would read like these like 5,000 facts, you know, like about the <laughs> universe or whatever. I just, I just thought information was, you know, I just felt like that was currency or something, you know, it was exciting comics. You know, my mom used to take me to the comic store and I beg her to let me wander around for an hour. Si some science fiction, you know, as I got a little older, some science fiction and fantasy, I read Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury and, Piers Anthony and um yeah and then when I was when I was in high school I met a guy who is like really into poetry and literary journals and I didn't know that there was such a thing really as a literary journal and so I remember starting to read contemporary poetry at that point and I had no idea what I was reading you know someone gave me like or he gave me you know some John Ashbery poems and I, I just didn't know what to make of it so I ended up minoring in creative writing at an undergraduate and, and that was in poetry. So I, I wrote poems when I was an undergrad. One of the conceptual bedrocks of interior Chinatown is Irving Hoffman's The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, which is one of the most important sociology books ever written. Will you tell us a bit about Hoffman's ideas and how they influenced your thinking around the subject matter of the book? Yeah, um... So yes, the presentation of self in everyday life is for those who may not know, um, basically a framework through which to view social interaction. 
it's a dramaturgical framework. And so it's, you know, when you're having a conversation, let's say at a business meeting, or just if you go and walk by, you know, or cross paths with your neighbor while walking your dogs, you know, you can think of the conversation here. I, I guess I'll, I'll do a better job trying maybe set it up. So two neighbors walking down the street, walking their dogs, they run into each other and they're talking. And then a third neighbor kind of wanders by and notices them. Maybe they don't notice that third neighbor yet. In sort of Goffman world, it's like, as I'm talking, say I'm one of the neighbors, I'm talking to my neighbor. At that moment, I'm a performer, right? I'm putting on some version of myself. And the neighbor listening is performing too, but also the audience for my performance. And then the neighbor, the third neighbor walking by is a kind of unobserved observer who's watching both of us, maybe. Goffman offers this incredible way of thinking about what do we do when we're putting on ourself? How can you think of, you know, even a, a casual interaction like that as a kind of role and performance? And what, what kind of insights does that yield? And then it also, you know, you can be used in different contexts. Like when you walk, when you go to a restaurant, you know, the, the waiter is kind of performing for you. You know, what are the front stage and backstage of, of certain areas that kind of demarcate where you are presenting a version of yourself and where you are holding back, you know, other parts of yourself. So that was all sort of in my head as I was trying to write the book. And um, I just did a terrible job of explaining. <laughs> I'm sure Hoffman wouldn't have minded. <laughs> uh, Interior Chinatown, it comes 10 years after your debut. And in that time, you've become a scriptwriter working on some of the most exciting shows of this amazing era of TV. How did that come about? Yeah, so you mentioned I, I had my debut novel 10 years earlier in 2010. And that was, I had a short story collection prior to that. So, you know, at this point I had published two books and I was working as a lawyer. I, I had been the whole time I, I was writing, I was working as a lawyer. And so that was really my job. And I didn't really think that books would lead to any kind of financial independence. I mean, that was just a reality of my sales record at that point. So, um, but I did get through that debut novel. Um, I did get lucky enough to sign with a TV and film agent. Um, and they, you know, were representing my work for like rights to sell to producers and studios. And, and, but they also started to gently steer me towards the idea of, would you want to, consider maybe writing for screen, you know, if you had that opportunity and, you know, it seemed like a pipe dream. I, I said, sure. But, it, but over the course of the next few years, I went on meetings, you know, these general meetings where you sit down on like a producer's couch and they give you a bottle of water and you talk and you're like, what was that? You leave. And you're like, what was that for? <laughs> they validate your parking. They're very nice. you know. And, and they say like, if you ever have any ideas, call us and we'll call you if we have anything for you. And I thought, oh yeah, what is the point of these really? Like, but there kind of is a point because that's how I got my first job. I think is I met an executive at HBO and I ended up getting in the mix for this job on this new show, Westworld. And so at that point, this was 2014, I was, you know, my wife and I, we had two kids. We had just moved into a new house 
in the suburbs and I was working as a lawyer and we had this big decision point, which was, should I remain a lawyer or should I take this leap and go work on this show? And it felt like the right time and the right opportunity to take the leap because it was already going to be a, it was a sold series, you know, at least for the first season. So I, I had a guaranteed paycheck for a few months. We would have health insurance. And so if we thought, let's take the plunge. And that, and that was sort of my entry into this world. And how has this experience informed interior Chinatown? Do you see the pernicious stereotypes that you're mocking in the book playing out in writer's rooms? Not really. You know, I think TV has the, and maybe it's the, I've been lucky enough to work in a subset of writer's rooms that people are thoughtful and self-aware and trying very hard to not, not reduce people to stereotypes. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I have not seen it. I think it, to the extent it happens, it's probably in other corners of the TV film world, but also there's, you know, so, so to some extent it's, it's a different era. The, the TV I grew up watching wouldn't exist now. That said, I think the effects still linger. You know, I think as we've seen in the U S um, especially, uh, there's still a lot of anti-Asian sentiment. It's still part of the psychology that Asians are for, for, for people, for many people, Asians are not Americans, you know, that, or, or that they're other. So, and, and, and they're so easy to identify, you know, physically, you know, just on a brute fact of that plays into it as well. And so, so I think that's one, that, that's one way that it, it, it's still operating. And I think in terms of writer's rooms or shows, I think now it's trickier because there's very much a desire and like real push to tell different kinds of stories. You know, I benefited from that directly. Like let's, let's try it, you know, interior Chinatown, for instance, I'm writing as pilot for Hulu, but at the same time, for me, it remains to be seen of whether or not like how long this lasts, you know, will this just be another blip? And, and then if things don't make money or, or don't work, do we go another few years or whatever, not seeing Asian projects or Asian American projects? So yeah, that I don't know. What are the differences between writing for TV and writing prose? I should mention that Interior Chinatown is written like a screenplay. Yeah, yeah prose, you have to write a lot more words. Uh, that's my... <laughs> okay, it's more uh... work. <laughs> <laughs> um... Screenwriting is very, I mean, they're both hard for me. I, I, you know, both of them are just, I don't find it easy. I'm not one of these people who just, it, you know, the work flows. It's excruciating to get anything done. But uh, I, I'm finding that, well, one, when you write for the screen, it's a visual medium and you're constrained by what is visualizable. Um, on some level, you have to render it into a language that other people are going to take and use to make something production designers, directors, you know, actors have to say the words that, that takes some translation for me mentally to like think that way, because in a book you're unconstrained, there's no rules, you know, no budget, time and space are, you're the master of the whole thing. So, um, it's just a much more for me interior, you know, 
you, you can get into much more interior and abstract places that, especially as I'm trying to adapt this book, you know, it's like an exercise in analogy making. It's like, well, how do I render this? If this is a psychological landscape, how do you, how do you render that into the physical? Did TV change you as a novelist beyond supplying a, a novel style for this particular book? It might have. Uh, I'm not sure I have enough distance from it yet to fully process. I do find myself sometimes using, I don't know how you describe it, like using screenwriter brain or at least screenwriter formatting, you know, and yes, with this book explicitly, but I do think there's, I don't know that they're positive or negative or if I even need to classify it, but it's probably done something to me on a sentence level, you know, in terms of being more concise and maybe sometimes even more direct. And so I, I hope that I can get the benefits of each one and cross fertilize without turning my prose into basically just like script prose. And one thing I have learned is going the other way. I used to like write these kind of <laughs> tone poems and my, I learned quickly in the writer's room, like they, they don't really want you to write a tone poem. They want you to write something that someone can film. So the going that way, I think I've had a very steep learning curve, but um, yeah, I don't know. It remains to be seen whether or not I'll, it'll continue to like influence. I, I, I really enjoy both, but you know, my, my real first love is prose fiction. What does the future hold for you? Are you, are you going to dig into being a novelist now that you've received this amazing prize? Are you even contemplating returning to your old life as an attorney? <laughs> <laughs> I've contemplated that for sure. When I look at all the stuff I have to get done or when a deadline is looming. Um, I don't know. I mean, I definitely want to write another book. I really enjoy, you know, I've tried a few essays and I, I enjoy that. So I, I want to keep writing fiction and nonfiction. And yeah, I, I, I'm lucky enough to right now to have um, a number of TV and film projects that are in development. And so I, yeah, I just feel like I get to do all of it. So for now, I'm not contemplating a return to being an attorney. I do maintain a California bar membership. Just, just in case, case. just in case. <laughs> Charles, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Russ. It was really nice talking with you. This week's episode starred Charles Yu and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. It was edited by John Doughty. If you enjoyed it, please tell all of your friends and visit us at howtoacademy.com for live streams, podcasts and films with some of the most inspiring figures in global culture. Until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>